According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, chapter uh, with the all-important message of beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And we're not quite there yet. We're still dealing with the introductory things in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And uh, the blessings we have for repetition. All right, before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for uh, this morning, Father, the message you fed us with out of uh, Proverbs 15, and thank you for uh, the real meat that you uh, supplied there, and and now tonight we're looking forward to some more as we feast upon the truth out of Philippians. So Father, thank you for being faithful. We give you the praise and glory in Christ's name, amen. All right, we have a microphone runner ready to go, so uh, we're ready for a lead-off question. I guess we'll leave Bill with a lead-off question. You had one by email and one not by email. Two by email. Two by email. I may not remember. Um, okay, the two are in the same email. All right, gotcha. I have two questions regarding the above-mentioned verses. I don't remember what they were. Uh, Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 through 17, we see the genealogy of Christ, which was to trace the lineage of Jesus to show him as the rightful heir to the throne of David. But it is not through Mary that he is the rightful heir, but by his stepfather Joseph. How I am looking at it this way, Jesus is the heir to the throne via his temporal relation to Joseph and his divinity is visible in that he is kept sinless through the divine act. All right, so... Tell me in your own words, what, what what's that question? There, there's a genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, and it is through David and through Solomon and down through Joseph, who was supposedly the father, but he was not the true father of Jesus through the Virgin Mary. And that's the Matthew genealogy. The Luke genealogy is the human genealogy that doesn't go through Solomon, it goes through Nathan, David, Nathan, and then down, and then reaches Mary through through Mary's father. Okay, yeah, see, that's what I was wondering is where does the the line of David, you know, go through to Christ? Is it Joseph or Mary? But uh, you Both. Know. Yeah, they're both Davidic. Okay. And then not only do they connect it, David and Solomon, and then they branch out between Solomon and, and Nathan, right? So they connect it, David, and then they separate at, at Solomon and, and, and uh, Nathan. They actually come back together again about halfway through with Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, and then they break branch out again, and that's a huge puzzle. That's that's caused a lot of a lot of contemplation as to how that happens and different things there. So, yeah, and we've got notes on that in the Life of Christ series notebook. It was the first four classes in Life of Christ that were all centered on the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, because I was because I was wondering in verse uh, one or chapter one, verse twenty, where the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, telling him, you know, don't worry about, you know, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Right. Uh, I was kind of wondering if. It, it just seemed kind of odd to me 
you know, that he would be contemplating, you know, departing from her in secret. And then an angel said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. So I just kind of thought that as if there was a, an importance in him remaining with Mary. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And so, um, by the way, uh, there are a lot of issues that work with that that are somewhat different than how we operate in the modern world. So, for example, an engagement in, in the Jewish world, in the ancient world, that, that was binding. Uh, an engagement means that your parents and her parents had already signed the, signed the contract and exchanged goats and, and, and uh, you know, the bride price and all the dowry and all that's been taken care of because marriages were, were co- combining clans and tribes and families and uh, far more than just you know, a bride and a groom that are in love want to get married someday, that there were parents involved, there were contracts signed, there were clans that had to be in agreement and things like that. So when when they were engaged, in order you can't just you know break off the engagement and you know throw the ring away. You you actually required a a um, a divorce uh, to to break an engagement, just like uh, a marriage. It had to be ended by a divorce proceeding. And in particular, um, you know, if you are engaged and the virgin you're engaged to is pregnant, uh, that young man you know is going to think something, you know. And uh, and it's actually it's a mark of faith when the angel shows up and says she's still a virgin, she's just a pregnant virgin, right? So here's a teenage boy, and you think about the faith this kid has to 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 trust that he's being told the truth, and then of course to have scripture that says, "Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son," and so he's able to take this promise related to scripture and then obey and uh, and and marry her. And so uh, they they did the they did the uh, the actual marriage proceeding, and sure enough, here comes the baby, and and that's how that works. So it's uh, it's and but wanting to put her away quietly was was very much a gracious act on his part because he had every right to you know to to have her you know the, the Romans wouldn't have let him uh, execute her, but under Mosaic law, uh, she would be you know executed for playing the harlot. And uh, and so anyway, the, there's a lot that's at work there in that chapter. Now you had a second question too. You, you actually kind of answered it because it was talking about being betrothed and how it was a legal binding agreement, which goes beyond just a regular engagement like we have today. Right. Because I found it interesting that several times in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and some other places, where they talk about a man being engaged to a woman, and if she's caught in an adulterous act, then right. he by right can stone her but it says stone his wife mm-hmm. so that's why you know they're, so they're not married yet but i knew that there was a legal mm-hmm. some type of legal definition to that and i found it interesting with joseph how he you know it said that he was righteous mm-hmm. and then like you said where he wanted to to separate from her privately and not make it a big spectacle because there's three different ways he could have done it according to the mosaic law and the the private one struck me because it was very interesting that he had chose to not disgrace her in public, which was also his right. Right, right, and and it's um, there's so much more to it also. I mean, the things that are alien to us today, we're we're, we're trapped by modernity in a lot of things that that hurt. Uh, for example, um, virginity is a matter of public record. That's that's a matter for the family and the clan and the tribe. And so uh, if he defames her and, and 
accuses her of not being a virgin on their wedding night, and then that's a matter for the whole the whole clan is going to get together at that point, and evidence will be presented, and and there's a whole test for that in scripture related to that because uh, the, uh, the 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 rights of inheritance uh, are are vital, and uh, the paternity of of the child is it cannot be in question, and uh, when you and so when you're putting these clans together, it's all a matter of public record, and uh, and we see some of it in Song of Solomon too, when the brothers are kind of. They're singing and they're kind of depressed because uh, they said, we have a little sister and she has no breasts, right? And, and it, it, to us, that's, that's awkward. We don't, we, don't, you know, we don't talk about that. We don't sing about that. We don't, you know, but it's a part of that song because the brothers, they don't want to take care of that woman in her old age. They want to make sure she gets married off. And they want to make sure that she gets married off and she has a husband to provide for and children to provide for and things like that. Uh, but the brothers are nervous because of, of you know, her small chestedness or what. They're nervous. They sing about it, right? They sing about the fact that it could be tough to get, to get her married off in, in, in that regard. Now, that's just an aspect of culture that we struggle with. We don't you know, so those are the kind of things that that we get to, and and uh, but the the nature of families and clans and tribes that are all involved in these marriage contracts is very much a, a normal feature of the ancient world and many places around the world to this day. I worked with a man from Nigeria, and he he met his wife on on their wedding day because it was an arranged marriage between their tribes, and and uh, and so he learned how to love her, and twenty years later they had four kids, and you know it it, it can work as far as uh, as far as that goes, but. Um, sometimes, you know, our modernity works against us for some of these things. All right, so I appreciate those questions. I will mark this as red or answered, which is not red, it's purple. And we can take fresh questions tonight too. Other things as they may arise. Other questions? Doesn't have to be a complicated question. In fact, easier the better. <laughs> if not, well then we'll, uh, you had one more? Um, I know we talked a little bit about it the other day, just in passing. Um, again, in Matthew, where it refers to, you know, the, where he talks about John the Baptist being the forerunner mm-hmm. uh, of the coming uh, Messiah. I kind of looked at that in ancient times especially in roman times that there was always like a herald or someone who went out before the king announcing that the king is is, is coming that the king is going to arrive um so i kind of liken john the baptist to a herald in in that respect and as such in first thessalonians 4 i believe is where it's at where um it talks about jesus returning with the shout of an archangel and and so forth and so on so can we kind of look at those two as heralds of the of, of the coming king with you know john the baptist being the coming of the the, the first coming of the king and then the, the archangel as the second coming or the returning of, of of the king yes and no yeah john the baptist was clearly the herald for the first advent could have been the herald for both advents if they would have accepted their messiah and brought in the kingdom then because the kingdom of heaven is at hand but since the kingdom was rejected and they crucified the christ there will now be a second advent and there will be another herald for the second advent, which will be Elijah. Elijah the prophet will be returning. And so John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come, if you care to accept it. Uh, but since they didn't accept the Messiah, then there is a second advent, and Elijah himself will be 
the, uh, the, the one who is to come. And so that's why you know, the Jews to this day, they save a place for Elijah at their table when they set up their, their Passover dinners. They're, they always have an empty table spot there because they're just in case they get to host Elijah when Elijah comes back. And that's kind of their tradition. Elijah is coming back and uh, he will be the herald for the second advent. And not the Archangel Michael. That's a different shout. All right. Then let's bring the microphone up front here. Three rows in front of you and to the left. Okay, quickly. I had meant to ask this previously. Apostles of the Lamb, you talked about a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't get it. Uh, I know it's different from Apostle of Christ. Mm-hmm. I understand that, but I didn't get what the definition of Apostles of the Lamb is. That the, it's not the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus, yes. but it's the... Okay. Because he's the Lamb of the Lamb of God that was without spot and blemish. Okay. Minus Judas and throw in Matthias? Or? Right. Minus Judas... Plus Matthias. Okay. Those are the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. And and you know, apostle is a spiritual gift. Pastor teacher is a spiritual gift. Evangelist is a spiritual gift. But before Pentecost, before the church age, before the church, Jesus called twelve as apostles. And so they weren't apostles by gift, but they were apostles by office in the Old Testament under Israel's dispensation, under Israel, under the Jewish stewardship. And so they are the apostles of the Lamb. And that means it's not Paul, it's not Barnabas, it's not James, it's the brother of Jesus or the other brothers of Jesus. Um, but it's the, the twelve. They're called the twelve and they're called the apostles of the Lamb. Yeah. Good question. I appreciate that. Alright, Doug's got a question. Back row. This is good. We've been overdue now for several weeks for a heavy Q&A night. Pastor Bob, when the uh, apostle Paul met the Lord on the Damascus Road, mm-hmm. Uh, in his res- had he ascended yet, the Lord? Uh, is there a timeline as far as uh, when the Apostle Paul met the Lord, the resurrected Lord? Yeah, probably around 35 A.D. is a mm-hmm. guess. Probably two years after the cross. Okay. Two years after the resurrection. Um, you know, plus or minus a year or two. It's, it's in that range from 35 to, to 36. Um, because we, we know that uh, the church is still largely in Jerusalem at that point. They hadn't started to spread out. Um, and, and by the time you get through Acts chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen, that starts to drive them out. Uh, but they're still, the church is still largely in Jerusalem at that point. And really what you end up doing is you end up backdating it from the standpoint of the fact that he spends 10 years in Tarsus and 2 years in Arabia. And you've got you to find the time frame for those things to fit all of which precedes 49 A.D., basically. So the, the, the Acts 15 conference and the writing of, of Galatians both happen in 48, 49 A.D. And so then you kind of fit events prior to that, leading up to that. Okay, did he actually see the Lord or just hear Him because he was blinded? To... Oh, he saw Him. Yeah, he saw the Lord, and then he saw the Lord for three years in the wilderness. He was taught by Jesus Christ okay. when he was in the, the wilderness of Arabia. Those are good questions. Those are great questions. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right, over to the recording booth. So the question I have, I'm trying to be clear here. Um, if we ran into an apostle or somebody claiming to be an apostle today, mm-hmm. what is your what is your uh, take on that? Well, they're not that... apostles of the Lamb. They're not spiritual gifted apostles. Um, and the reason why is, uh, is because of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, and last of all, as to one untimely born. So you've got this list of apostles, 
that he appeared first to Cephas, right? And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. All right, so that's all the apostles. So whoever it is you're talking to, and I've done this, uh, whoever it is you're talking to that tells you he's an apostle, show them this verse and say, now which one of these are you? (laughs) Okay, because he appeared to all the apostles. And then last of all, and really it's last of all and after he was done calling apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so as I read this and the natural reading of this text is that nobody was ever called to apostolic office after Saul of Tarsus. That he was the final one that was vested in that office because of the last of all, he appeared to me also. So this is, um, this is uh, one of the great passages that helps to define apostleship. You have to be an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of his resurrection. And so nobody today is old enough you know, to be 2,000 years old and have been called to be an apostle. Now, there are other ways that they're used. In Africa, it's pretty common to, you know, Benny calls himself an apostle. Other people could be called apostles. And in that sense, it might even be useful to understand what we looked at in Philippians chapter 2, where um, he calls Epaphroditus, you know, your messenger, your minister to my needs. And that's also an apostle. Now, that's an apostle of the church of, uh, at Philippi. If somebody was going to try to use the term today, on that basis, I'd be okay with it, but nobody ever does. All right, today somebody who tells you they're an apostle is, by and large, they're a flaming Pentecostal. They're a, they're a charismatic. They're um, they're a snake handling, you know, tongue speaker, whatever. And and they, you know, they th- they thrive in calling each other apostle, almost like, you know, the the Pharisees would thrive being called rabbi, you know, by one another. And and so when you can reach that point where you're not just a prophet, you're an apostle. Hey, in the in the flaming Pentecostal world, that's that's big time right there. So, uh, anybody that you meet on that basis is probably taking it that direction. Um, in Africa, uh, a lot of times they're just used um, for missionaries. They're used for traveling pastors. They're used for evangelists. Uh, they're used for basically if you're a pastor and you've only got one flock, they call you pastor. But if you're a missionary and you travel around, then they call you an apostle because you're just a, a traveling around kind of guy. And, uh, and, but when I, I talked to Benny about this, because uh, Steve Arnold and I kind of said, you know, Benny, we're not comfortable calling you Apostle. Can we we'll just call you Benny? You know? And, and so he wanted to know, well, why are you not comfortable calling me Apostle? We said, well, here's why. You know? and, so, and we wanted to know, you know, do you believe that you're a, a, an Apostle with a power to raise from the dead and to represent Jesus Christ and cast out demons and and all this stuff. Were you a, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ? He says, oh no, no, of course not, of course not. So um, they, they have rather loose usages uh, throughout, not just Kenya, but all throughout Africa. It is throughout that continent. You know, there's all kinds of apostles and prophets that, that call themselves that. Thank you for clarifying that because when you had said it before, you sort of just briefly touched on it, how you were okay with if somebody called, if they called themselves apostle, and I'm like, I don't understand that. Yeah, only, only in the uh, Philippians 2 sense where, uh, where he is the, uh, in verse 25, Epaphroditus is my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your apostle and minister to my needs. And so that's the only way, in a very generic way, 
Uh, there's a, also in 1 Corinthians talks about the brethren who are apostles of the churches. So if we commission somebody out of Austin Bible Church and he becomes our apostle to represent us in some other place, you know, we, could, we would have a biblical usage of that word that, uh, but we're not trying to convey, you know, Paul and Peter and James and, you know, apostolic status. And we would probably not call him an apostle. We would, we would say messenger or we would something say messenger. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Right. You know, it's like you tell somebody, hey, I'm a Catholic. And what I mean by that, of course, is I'm part of the universal church. But they're not going to hear that. They're going to hear I'm Catholic and they're going to think I'm Roman Catholic. Right? I'm a part of the, you know, the Roman priesthood or whatever. Or tell somebody, yeah, I'm charismatic because I believe I have a spiritual gift. Well, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can etymologically make a case for that. But that's not what they're going to understand when they hear the word, say. And it's the same thing with apostle. We can etymologically maybe make a case for it as a missionary or a, an agent of this flock, but we're not going to go there because it's just going to be misunderstood every time we, we try to explain that. So, All right. I appreciate your questions. Let's, uh, if I didn't get to yours, then uh, we'll let you go first next week. How about that? Finally, my brethren, finally, and some people get upset with that because it seems like it's a conclusion, right? Well, there's another finally in chapter 4 and verse 8, and that's not a conclusion either. And there's, um, there's, there's different ways you can say finally. And, and really, I think it's because, um, because he spent two whole chapters just warming up, <laughs> just getting ready to say anything, just getting ready to convey some new stuff. So Paul and Timothy spent a couple of chapters kind of giving background and explanation for what brings him to this to this letter. And so finally, my brethren, he finally gets around to introducing the meat of what he wants to convey. And so as we break down chapter 3, we're going to break it down into four segments. Chapter 3 really begins Paul's main address. The main address to the Philippians starts here. And it, it takes us from 3.1 down to 4.9. With all the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy exhort the Philippians to joyfully keep on pressing onward and upward. And that's essentially the message of Philippians. Press on, press on, onward and upward, right? Forget what lies behind, reach forward to what lies ahead, reach forward for it. Uh, that's, that's, that's Philippians, right? We're rejoicing and we're, we're pressing onward and upward. And so in four sections now, we're going to handle this chapter in four different parts. The main address begins with rejoice and beware. Rejoice and beware. And so we see the rejoice in verse 1, we see beware, really three bewares in verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And so there's a rejoice and then there's beware, beware, beware. And that's uh, stressing the spiritual reality of our sign and seal. The spiritual reality of our sign and seal. If that doesn't make any sense to you tonight, don't worry about it. It's going to get unfolded through these six verses the spiritual reality of our sign and our seal. Because the sign and seal of Israel's covenant was circumcision. That was the sign of their covenant under Abraham and that was the seal of their covenant under Abraham. And it was an earthly ritual. It was a physical thing that they had to do to every male child. And uh, that was the seal of the covenant. It was the sign of the covenant. It was the token that they are the Jews, that they are God's chosen people, that they are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. We, on the other hand, uh, theirs was shadows, ours is reality. 
The substance belongs to Christ. We're the substance. We're in Christ. And what we're going to see in verse 3 is that we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And so that's a title. We are the body. We are the bride. We are the circumcision. (laughs) Okay? And it's one that doesn't get a lot of attention focused on it, but it's true. We are the circumcision. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to study it. But it's the spiritual reality. It is not an external. It is not an earthly thing. It is not a physical thing. So there is a spiritual reality of our sign and our seal. And so this message begins with rejoice and beware. And and so it's an introductory thing and it's going to take us down through verse 6. So it starts with a finally and it ends with a blameless. Found blameless. And that's the introduction to the, the meat of what Paul's saying. He's then going to follow it up <coughs> with uh, a profit and loss statement. After summarizing his impressive credentials, Paul recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement. That's verses 7 through 12. And so in verses 1 through 6, this introductory message really is, is, uh, is like a resume, right? It's, uh, it's his credentials. It's anything he says, you know what, if, if somebody can boast in the flesh, it would be me. I would be first in line to boast in the flesh. So let's look at it. Because um, verse 3 says, We are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is who we are and here's what we do. We uh, worship in the Spirit, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three things we do as the circumcision. That's a great description. And the three things we do, by the way, follows the three things you're supposed to beware. Beware the dogs, beware the, beware the uh, evil workers, and beware the mutilation, the false circumcision. But we put no confidence in the flesh. Nobody is bragging about our human ability. Nobody is bragging about how great we are, how smart we are, how handsome we are, the great things we can do. We put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, although <laughs> I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he kind of uses himself as the example to tell them why it's a waste of time. Because if one of them tries it, they're going to fall short of, of him. And then he says, don't even bother. Because, you know, I'm the best guy out of all you guys and, and, and all of this is worthless. <laughs> okay? And so it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's also effective. And it's somewhat similar to how he approached the Corinthians. And, and, and uh, I think the, the writing of 1 Corinthians and the writing of Philippians are a lot closer than most people give it credit for. Uh, whereas he's not really rebuking the Philippians like he was rebuking the Corinthians, but still he uses a similar... Uh, logic in order to do this. So then he talks about his credentials. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day. So he's been keeping the law since he was eight days old. You know, He's been keeping the law his whole life. Uh, of the nation of Israel, chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee. What else can you say? The Pharisees are the best law keepers around, right? You know, it'd be like saying as to, you know, a baseball player, Major League Hall of Fame. You know, it's just, there's no one better. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, 
He, he could out-Pharisee any Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church. <coughs> I mean, you know how much you love God if you're willing to kill for Him, right? That's, uh, <coughs> well, that's the misguided zeal of legalism. As to um, the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. So he's, he's actually one up on the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler thought he was blameless and Jesus said, well, it's one thing you're lacking. The Apostle Paul, he had that one thing lacking. He had it all. He was blameless. There was nothing he was lacking. And then he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And this is where we get introduced to the profit and loss statement. Here's where we get used to the accounting terms. These are the things where you've got a ledger with the column of your assets and a ledger with a column of your liabilities. And uh, you want your assets to be larger than your liabilities because you want to have a positive net worth instead of being in the red and being in debt. And uh, what Paul just did was he took everything in his assets and he reclassified them and said they're all loss. He said they're all liabilities. They're all, they're all worthless. So he recategorizes all of them. And, you know, when you do that, wow, that gets, that gets you know, you've got to be thinking God's thoughts to, uh, to understand this for what it is. So that's verses 7 through 12. And uh, we'll deal with that. And then thirdly, this humble attitude equips us all to keep pressing on the upward way. To keep pressing on the upward way. It's like the, the hymn that I love so much. The uh, pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And uh, higher ground is the hymn that, uh, that I like so much. And, uh, and this is where you don't regard yourself as having laid hold of it yet. So verse 12 ends the previous paragraph and crosses us into verse 13 that starts this paragraph. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You know, imagine you're running a race and you just let off on the accelerator. You start to coast. You think, oh, I've got this in the bag. You know, and you think, hey, I've won this. This is easy. You know, and then you let off the gas and what happens? You know, somebody behind you didn't let off the gas. <laughs> and they end up passing you at the finish line, okay? Whether you're a, I don't know, a race car driver or a horse or, or a runner or whatever you're doing, keep on pressing on. We're not coasting while we're still in this life. And he says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So don't just assume that you've, that you've arrived, that you're there. The one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that is such a powerful verse because it's constantly, constantly, constantly moving forward, forward, forward. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it just, it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. And I, and I think that's intentional. I think that's not an accident. That's just, you know, that's just making a point. And uh, when, when Mrs. Hawkins says, uh, there will be no run-on sentences in my, she's my essay fundamentals teacher. And when she, uh, she made it very clear that if you take Roberta Hawkins for for essay fundamentals, that uh, it was going to be the toughest grade you'd ever have. And one thing she said was she hates run-on sentences. And so, of course, what do you want to do on your first paper that you turn in? 
You want to find out if she really meant it or not. So you have a long run on sentence that just goes and goes and goes and goes. And then you find out that yeah, she meant it. And uh, your grade reflects that. And, and, and I mean, it's fun until you have to redo the paper because she didn't just give you an F. She would give you, you know, the grade and then make you do it again. And uh, yeah. So press on, press on, press on, press on, press on. And if you have a different attitude, you can't press on. Verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. There's nothing like, you know, learning the attitude adjustment in progress, thinking, wow, I'm not getting anywhere because I should have adjusted my attitude, you know, already by now. So the humble attitude equips us to keep pressing on the upward way. Finally, then, the chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And uh, this is verses 17 through 21. Join in following my example. They can be an imitator of Paul, but there's another crowd and you don't want to imitate them. They are enemies of the cross of Christ and you don't want to imitate them. You want to imitate the the right example and avoid the wrong example. Enemies of the cross of Christ whose uh, God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. And uh, man, that's destructive to a flock. And then it says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glories of citizenship, and the glories, and particularly for Philippi to receive this, because of all the Macedonian churches, Philippi is a Roman colony. The Philippians are Roman citizens. And they're very proud to be Roman citizens. They are better than the Thessalonians, and then the Bereans, and the Athenians, and anybody else that's not a Roman colony, that's not a Roman citizen. So, I mean, just try to imagine if something like that happened here, if we had Austin and Round Rock and Pflugerville and whatever, whatever, and then, but one of those communities, let's just say Pflugerville, and if and the, the, the residents of, of Pflugerville are not Texans, they're not Americans, they're not, you know, that they have a citizenship that is the supreme power on planet Earth, that conquers everybody else. You know, the iron that crushes everything it wants to crush. And uh, that's what Philippi was, a Roman colony. And uh, yes, it's on Macedonian, Macedonian uh, soil, and yes, it's on, uh, but it's a Roman colony. Okay, so don't confuse the geography with the politics. And uh, so for this church to be the church that gets the message about a heavenly citizenship, that's, that's powerful, <laughs> okay? And that should hit all of us, because if we're all proud to be American citizens, if we're all patriotic, and I hope we are, if we're all patriotic and happy to be Americans or happy to be Texans or happy to be whatever, just remember that uh, our citizenship is in heaven. And so whatever the temporal life thing is, that's going away. Heaven is forever. And that's, uh, that's to boast in. So our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. And of course, mortality has to be cast off and immortality has to be put on. The body of our humble state. And that's by design. It's always been the humble state, even before the fall. Adam and Eve and their sinlessness, that was a humble state designed to give way to uh, glory into conformity with the body of His glory. And so we've got a great rapture passage there. Okay? Anyway, fun stuff. 
especially these days when there's so many rapture skeptics out there that mock it and reject it and whatever else. So, rejoice in the Lord. Before the travel plans interruption, Paul had shared his own joy and exhorted the Philippians to rejoice with. And there's so many rejoice uh, messages from chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Every chapter has a rejoice message in it. And uh, before the travel plans interruption, Paul had shared his own joy. That's 1.18 and 2.17. And then he had exhorted the Philippians to start rejoicing on their behalf and he would join with them. All right, so and it's kind of, sometimes you're not sure, well, who's, who's rejoicing and who's rejoicing with who's rejoicing if we're all, if we're all rejoicing, right? So, uh, you know, it's like singing. If, if I'm singing and then you join in, then you're singing with me. But if you're singing and then I join in, then I'm singing with you. But we're all just singing together, aren't we? I mean, at some point, somebody started the thing, I guess, and then the rest of us jumped in. Same thing with rejoicing. If we're constantly rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, then we might even forget who started this whole thing. Okay? That's fine. Because that reinforces it each, each way that it goes. And so uh, in Philippians 1.18 he says... Uh, you know, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I presently rejoice. Yes, I will future rejoice. So there's a double reference there. I, I do rejoice and I will rejoice. And uh, both, uh, both aspects are there in 118. And then in 217 he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. <coughs> and you know, a lot of ways, this is kind of a cheat sheet. This is like uh, crib notes, right? This is cliff notes. Uh, if you don't know how to encourage somebody, well, just start with whatever it is you're rejoicing over at the moment. Say, I'm going to share my joy with you. Here's an answer to prayer. Here's what God's doing. Here's a miracle that just took place. And uh, just start sharing how God's at work. And uh, And just Share the way that God's working in your life. And uh, don't, don't be racking your brains trying to think, well, hmm, here's a, here's a sister and she's in this terrible spot and I can't imagine what she's going through and what, what might be a verse that might apply to what she's dealing with and forget that. Forget trying to, you know, psychoanalyze and figure this and figure that and, and try to guess, you know, well, that verse might be appropriate or well, that verse might be, you know, None of us are that smart anyway, so quit it. And just, you are rejoicing, share your joy with them, and watch how the Holy Spirit works. And you'll be surprised. And it may, you maybe had no clue whatsoever and say, you know, here's a, I watched Ralph do this one time at a hospital visit. And all he did was, he said, hey, you know, can I read you? And he read a psalm, and he said, this is what Dorothy and I read this morning. And boom, it worked. And uh, the person we were visiting goes, wow, I've never heard that before. And, and it was a blessing. We were uh, visiting Nell Bean at the time. And, uh, and so we walked out of there and I was just a kid. I was learning. I was a student. I was watching Ralph. And um, and it was good stuff. <laughs> you know, There was a part of me that wanted to get a little notebook out and start taking notes there in the hospital room while he was, while he was encouraging Nell Bean. You know? And then I walked out and I said, wow, you know, how do you know what to say? And he goes, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I just, you know, trust in the Lord that He'll He'll give me the utterance. He'll 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 be at work. So I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, 
Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So Paul had rejoiced and shared it with them. He wanted them to rejoice and share it with him. And that way it communicates both directions. And this was all before the travel plan. All that's before we get to 2.19 where he says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So he'd already been kind of in a, in a, in a rejoicing mode before he got to this side trip with the uh, travel plans. And so now that he's done with the travel plans, he comes back to his topic and he's going to return to the imperative here. And he's going to do so again and again. And so in three one we have the command, it's an imperative, rejoice. That's not a helpful hint, that's not a suggestion, that's an order. Okay, rejoice. And if you don't feel like it, do it anyway. That's right, that's an order. And uh, he's going to do so again and again. Uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so that's the imperative. Now, we want to not forget what does this mean in the Lord? Because we have this in the Lord statement that we had before. Remember we had hoping in the Lord. And hoping in the Lord subjects personal desire to the headship of Christ. It's the same thing with rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord subjects personal enjoyment to the grace appreciation perspective of Jesus Christ. So if I hope in the Lord to do something, that means I'm on board with the will of God. I hope in the Lord to do this. I hope in the Lord to do that. What that means is I hope to do it, but if the Lord doesn't hope to do it, then not my will but thine be done, right? So even though I hope to do it, if the Lord doesn't want me to do it, I don't want it. And I'll say, thank you, Lord, for saying no. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me out of trouble. Thank you for, uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I was <laughs> wrong for that or whatever. I just didn't know, okay? David wanted to build a temple. Nothing wrong with that. He just didn't know that it was for his son to do, not for him to do, see? And so when we hope in the Lord to do things, they might be right. They might be good things for us to do. Maybe good things for somebody to do. It's just not for us to do because the Lord has somebody else designed to do that. And so uh, put that phrase in there, that in the Lord, and you're automatically connecting it to the will of God. You're connecting it to our pursuit of the will of God, the fact that we are yoked together with Jesus Christ. And this is true for everything we hope, and this is true for everything we rejoice in. So let me ask you something. If you're rejoicing over something and the Lord's not rejoicing over it, that's a problem. Because sometimes we're rejoicing over something and the Lord's weeping. That was the case with the Corinthians. They were so rejoicing over the fact that they were, they were the first, uh, you know, the, the early prototype of, you know, American tolerance. And they said, ooh, we can tolerate this, uh, this man of incest. Aren't we a big flock, you know? And, and they were bragging about this guy. And Paul said, what are you talking about? Throw him out of there. Even Gentiles don't, don't sin like that. What are you doing? And uh, so that's not something to boast in. That's something to weep over. And uh, if we're rejoicing not in the Lord, that means He's not rejoicing, but we are. And that's a problem. Okay. Uh, but if He's rejoicing over something and we're not, that's also a problem. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we better start rejoicing if, because He is, and it's rejoice in the Lord always. So uh, when we become aware of something He's rejoicing over, we better, you know, ramp it up and, and start rejoicing now and find what it is that He's rejoicing in. Because he's not rejoicing in the problems. He's not rejoicing in the, you know, the cancer or 
the, the bad thing that happened. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, a sad thing happened. The Bible doesn't tell us to rejoice in sad things. It tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Okay? And we do rejoice, we do weep, we have, we understand there's a distinction. They're, they're different things, but we can still rejoice while we're weeping because we're rejoicing in the Lord. Okay? And hopefully these things will, will make sense. Um, so it's subject, again, it's a subjection of our will to the will of God, and it subjects our personal enjoyment. And at a certain point, we stop enjoying things that we shouldn't be enjoying. And we stop, you know, the things of earth grow strangely dim. We stop, it just, it, it no longer has the attraction it used to have. Because we're getting more and more where we're rejoicing in what God rejoices in. See? And the biggest thing here is the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Okay? And so if it's, if it's not according to the Word of God, how do I rejoice in it? How do I rejoice in it? Anyway, that's, that's key. It, it's gonna, you'll get in trouble. If, you, if you're faithful with this, you'll get in trouble. And um, in, in, in my family I've gotten in trouble in, in different things. And, and you watch a believer in sin, and, and then you're going to say, congratulations, I'm happy for you. I'm not going to say, congratulations, I'm happy for you. I'm going to say I'm sorry for you and I'm praying that uh, the Lord will rescue you from this sin, from this death style that uh, is not contrary to Scripture. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. And that's, uh, that's key. Alright, so we subject our personal enjoyments. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 4, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. And so there's another example of rejoicing in the Lord. In this case it's greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. And, uh, and you notice it's spiritual. It's not for the money. It's not for the, ooh, I just got a big paycheck. He says, uh, for you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. You've got to get this in perspective. Because if the other person doesn't know that you're rejoicing in the Lord, they're going to think you're weird. <laughs> or they're going to think you're selfish. Or they're going to think uh, you know, that it was just all about the money. And he says, you know, it's not the gift. And um, in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The profit that increases to your account. Okay? What's, what's Austin Bible Church blessed with? See, what are we thankful for? You know, uh, thankful for uh, a, a, a flock that supports a full-time salary? Or thankful for a flock with a spiritual maturity that wants to support a full-time salary? See, because that's the priority. That's where the Word of God comes first and foremost. That's where the real spiritual battle is, is, is applied. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 4. So, this blessing requires us to be in fellowship, and this blessing requires us to be occupied with Christ and abiding in the Word of God. If you're carnal, you cannot rejoice in the Lord. If you're carnal, the only thing you can rejoice in is your carnality. <laughs> and you can, re- you can have joy in your sin, out of fellowship. But you cannot have joy in the Lord. You've got to be in fellowship. If, if you're carnal, then all you have is the passing pleasures of sin. And so there's a, there's a pleasure, there's a joy, but it's passing. 
And in fact, it's a, it's a wicked drug. You've got to get more of it, more of it, more often, and more of it. Uh, but rejoicing in the Lord, you've got to be in fellowship. That's the fruit of the Spirit is joy, Galatians 5.22. And also, um, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, 1 Corinthians 13.6. And you've got to be occupied with Christ, abiding in the Word of God, or you're not rejoicing in the Lord. Thirdly, repetition is a protection, not a problem. He says, no problem. Today we'd probably say, uh, no sweat, or no, yeah, no biggie, no problem. To write the same thing again is no trouble. No trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. And uh, we'll talk about the idiom here in a moment, because the trouble issue is an issue of, of laziness. And Paul says, I'm not lazy, it's no trouble. And it's a safeguard for you. It's a protection for you. It's your benefit. It's your protection, not a problem. And so we have repetition. And we have repetition here. We have repetition in Romans 15. We have repetition in 2 Peter 1. We have repetition in Isaiah 28. We have repetition in Deuteronomy 6. We have repetition here, Philippians 3, 1. Should have listed that on the slide. There are a lot of Bible verses that, that emphasize the doctrine of repetition, and that's on purpose, okay? The time, it was like, uh, somebody laughed Sunday morning, but how, how silly would it be for God to reveal the doctrine of repetition and only do so once? Okay, that makes no sense. He's going to reveal the doctrine of repetition many, many times throughout Scripture. And so this is what we are looking at here. And, and we know these verses, but sometimes we forget them. Romans fifteen fifteen. I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. And so reminding you again, there's repetition. Second Peter 1, and I love the fact that Peter is the knucklehead chosen to write this because Peter had to learn things over and over and over again. Peter's the one that took a while to figure stuff out. I mean, he's standing in the empty tomb thinking, What's happening here? Okay. Second Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. So uh, he's still alive. Until the day I die, I'm going to keep telling you this, until the day I die. And I'm going to keep telling you this over and over again so that after the day I die, you're never going to forget it. You're never, when, when you think of my name after I'm gone, the first thing you're going to think about is all that stuff he kept saying over and over and over again. Isaiah 28. And it seems like gibberish. It seems like baby talk. It seems insulting. All right? Repeat after me. Repetition is good. You didn't do it. Repeat after me. Repetition is good. All right, some of you did it. Repeat after me. All right, see? And this is what he does. And in Isaiah 28... The Jewish religious leaders were offended. They were horrified. They were insulted. 
He, they thought Isaiah was treating them like a bunch of babies. And um, for he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And the language on this, the lama, lama, bama, bama, I forget how it reads in the Hebrew, but it's very, it's very redundant, it's very repetitive, it's very much baby talk in, in the kind of thing that even a, a toddler can say or a, 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 an infant can say. <coughs> this follows the rhetorical questions in verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? To those just weaned from milk? To those just taken from the breast? And this is the rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. <laughs> and uh, if they are insulted, if they feel like he's talking to them like babies, well, maybe it's because they are babies. And uh, it says, okay, that's the way it works. And so uh, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And, and when a baby is learning things, when a baby is learning how to talk, you probably have to tell them something, you know, 150 million times. But they eventually get it. And you correct their grammar and you correct their, their everything and, and they eventually catch on. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And this very rebuke even becomes a prophecy of the gift of tongues in the church age. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order. Line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And then the consequence for ignoring the prophecy, so that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. When they ignore the gift of tongues that's, that's manifest in the first century, they, uh, they're ignoring the final warning that comes before Jerusalem is destroyed. And that's prophesied right there. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Repetition, repetition in the home. Repetition is a protection, not a problem. In fact, it's good to say it again. It's good to say it again and again. It's good to keep on saying it, even though they already know it. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going in to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson. Alright, so this takes time. <laughs> you know, you don't get a son and a grandson overnight. This, this takes time. And you've got to be learning the Word of God and you've got to be teaching the Word of God. You've got to be reviewing the Word of God. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life. And that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should not, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now, how do you get them there? How do you take words to heart? It takes repetition, repetition, repetition. 
you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I mean, four times in the same day? Come on, what kind of fanatics do you think we are anyway? But this is what it takes to teach diligently. And uh, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You ever tie a string to your finger so you remember something? And then you forgot what the string on your finger was for, but you have a string on your finger. Okay, maybe not. But that's what these are about, binding them as a sign on your hand, as frontals on your forehead. They eventually created these uh, woven tassels, for example, on their garments. And they had different reminding tassels, and they would lengthen the phylacteries on their on their garments, and, and in some cases it then became the way that they would brag about you know, how many of these Bible verses they'd memorized and learned, and how much they had committed to memory because you know, their, their tassels were longer than somebody else's tassels, and it just, it's, a, it's a silly thing. But that's pride and arrogance, right? And so uh, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so you've got sticky notes all over the place. <laughs> okay? And uh, this is all of this reinforces the fact that repetition is a protection, not a problem. And it's a good thing when he says rejoice. To say the same thing again and again is no problem to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Now the term asphalase, asphalase, this is... Um, per- uh, wait a minute. Is this protection or is this problem? <laughs> All right. It is protection, not a problem. Okay. Osphalase, number 804. I didn't write down the translation for osphalase or acneros. All right. So figure it out. <laughs> These are the two words we're looking at in this verse. All right, and in the reason why it's backwards is because it's backwards, and uh, pr- protection, protection is on is acneros, and no, 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 not a problem is acneros. Protection is osphalase. There we go. Anyway, you'll see what I mean. We'll, we'll look at these terms. Osphalase is number 804, it's got five uses. Acne Ross is 3636, and it has three uses, plus some Septuagint uses. All right? Um, so Acts 21 34, these are the terms. And Philippians 3 1. To write the same things again is no trouble. Acne Ross. And it is a safeguard for you. Osphalase. All right, so osphalase is safeguard. And acneros is no problem. <laughs> okay? And, uh, and even that's a bit idiomatic because no problem means not lazy. And uh, if, if something's no problem, it's because I'm not lazy. And uh, Paul says, hey, I don't mind. I can, I can write that again. I can write that again. I can keep on writing it. I can write for it a hundred times because I'm not lazy. So, not lazy, no problem. Um, if that makes sense. But a safeguard, a protection, an osphalase, Acts 
And it's good to maybe think of it in these terms. So the book of Acts, oh, I'm out of time. 2134. Want to do an extra hour tonight? Keep it till midnight, see who falls out the window. So Acts 2134. Among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And uh, so he's brought in for his protection. And he couldn't find out the facts, the certainty. The, um, yeah, so that we have the use there. 22.30. On the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. He wants to have the certainty. He wants to be. Uh, he wants to have the safeguard. He says, "Just to be safe, better safe than sorry. Just to be certain, I got to know the facts." And so, repetition gives us that kind of certainty, so that we have the facts. It's a safeguard. Just to be clear, repetition makes things clear. <laughs> Just to be clear, make sure we have all the facts. Repetition does that. Then uh, twenty-five, twenty-six. Um, Paul gets in Rome and he's on trial and they say, we don't know anything about your case. We don't have any case file. There's no, uh, we haven't received anything from you. I've received nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore I brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I can have something to write. <laughs> I don't know what to say. There's no evidence. It's the strangest legal case in the world. Anyway, that's uh, a safeguard. That's a safeguard. Philippians 3, 1, Hebrews 6, 19. I'm sorry to keep you late. Let's, uh, let's tie it together here. Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. And so we have a safeguard, something that's sure and steadfast in terms of the Word of God. All right, Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your faithfulness, for the questions and answers, for the scriptures we've looked at. We pray that all these things would be would come alive in our thinking. That Father, uh, we can hear it again and again and again, and and just be all the more certain of the truth of your word. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.